Our text this morning, as we hear from the living God in his word, is 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 1 to 31. Welcome to you all and to you in particular who are visiting with us this morning. You've come at an intense moment of our ongoing study of First and Second Samuel. If you all can have access to a Bible, if there's enough for everyone, that'll help as we move through this text. Let me begin by suggesting that First Second Samuel chapter 12 is harder to explain than chapter 11 was. Maybe that's because chapter 11 was about David, and so by extension, about us. In some sense, we get chapter 11. We may not have executed our sin in the ways David did, as he took Bathsheba and then orchestrated the murder of Uriah, her husband. But we know the road to David went down. We've walked there ourselves. Jesus made that clear. Matthew chapter 5, verse 27, Jesus says, You have heard it said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Or back up to verse 21 of Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Ours may not have been the actions of David, but we know all too well the pathways of David's heart. So in that sense, it's not chapter 11 that's hard to explain. It's chapter 12. Because chapter 12 is about the Lord. And I don't always know how to talk about him. I see at least three things that God does in chapter 12. And I think it's challenging to talk about all three of them. In fact, I'm not going to make it much to the third before our time will be done. But in chapter 12, the Lord, first of all, pursues David. Then secondly, the Lord pardons David. And then thirdly, the Lord punishes David. And if you have the text there in front of you, you can look just at three key points here with me and you'll see where I'm getting this and you'll see how it is that this chapter is about the Lord and what the Lord does. So look there, first of all, verse one, it says, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. That's the Lord pursuing David. Then secondly, if you jump down to verse 13, halfway through verse 13, you read, 
And Nathan said to David, The Lord has put away your sin. That's the Lord pardoning David. And then thirdly, in verse 15, again halfway through that verse, it says, And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David. That's the Lord punishing David. They're all the Lord. So we're going to consider the content of most of chapter 12 under those three headings this morning. But I say most of because that's not quite the end of what the Lord does. But that part's a bit of a surprise, I think, so we'll just have to wait till the end to consider that. Begin with me then in verse 1 as we consider now in verses 1 all the way to 12, we'll consider those verses under the heading, the Lord pursuing David. And I guess my initial question is, what if he hadn't? Have you ever looked at it that way? What if the Lord had just abandoned David? What if the Lord were just to abandon us when we succeed in our sin? Where would we be? Where would we all be, (laughs) brothers and sisters? Verse 1 says, And the Lord sent Nathan to David. And I think the key is to consider why. Why did the Lord do that? You remember last week, the last sentence of chapter 11 was where we finally got the Lord's perspective on everything that had happened in that very long sermon and text from last week. Verse 27b of chapter 11, the ESV says, But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. We talked about how literally that reads, But the thing that David had done was evil in the eyes of the Lord. So then you come to verse 1 of chapter 12 and you read, And the Lord sent Nathan to David. And I think it would be easy to think about that as the Lord going after David, right? As in the sense of nailing him. That would sort of feel right. I mean, we considered in great detail last week how David had not used his position, his power as the king of Israel there for doing justice and righteousness for all his people any longer as he once had been, but rather to commit adultery, to arrange a murder, to cover it up. And David used his position as God's king not to serve others, but to assert his own self-serving desires, to abuse and to harm others, to benefit and protect himself. So I think when we see the Lord now swing into action, We're ready for judgment, right? And there is judgment in this text, of course. At least a certain kind of it. But you heard Eden read the whole account. And I'm going to say to you, I think you have to conclude that ultimately... Though there are judgment aspects to what the Lord will do here, what motivates the Lord fundamentally isn't judgment in this moment. 
What motivates the Lord here is grace and mercy, kindness, steadfast love, to which, if you were here last week, I hope you might object by saying, David doesn't deserve that. You'd be right, of course. And we're going to talk more about that when we come to verse 13. But the point here is that the Lord sends Nathan. Why? Because the Lord is pursuing David. Or the Lord intends to bring David to repentance. This is the Lord graciously intervening in David's life to confront him with his sin. And brothers and sisters, I just want to say this. That's exactly what we want the Lord to do for us. Not that it'll be pleasant when it happens. It won't be. It won't be for David. But we need the Lord to pursue and expose us in our sin. You and I may succeed in unfaithfulness for a time, but mark it, Christian, the Lord will come after you. Because the Lord loves you. He won't allow you to remain comfortable in sin and just settle down in it. Because that would be the worst judgment imaginable. So the Lord sends Nathan. And you remember Nathan, right? Nathan's the same prophet who'd come to David back in chapter 7, if you've been with us. In chapter 7, where Nathan delivered from the Lord that astonishing promise from the Lord that David's house would be forever. Remember this? The covenant, we called it, in chapter 7. Verse 16 of chapter 7 was the high point where Nathan says, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever, Nathan said. Now, I think those promises are in view again because the same Nathan is sent once more by the Lord to David. And it's significant, I think, the form that Nathan's words will take. It seems important to me that the punchline in verse 7 of our chapter isn't where Nathan starts. Right? I'm trying to suggest to you that the Lord intends to get David's heart. And I don't know this, but maybe David's defenses were up. Do you think? (laughs) Maybe the Lord knew that a frontal assault wouldn't get through. And so the Lord goes around that. One commentator calls this the holy craftiness of grace. I like that very much. Nathan doesn't go in with guns blazing. Instead, he brings a case for the king to consider. Now, it's quite stylized in the way that Nathan tells it, but David seems to hear it as a historical event, which I think is the purpose. There's a rich man. There's a poor man. 
The rich man has many flocks and herds. The poor man has one little ewe lamb, which he bought. You heard Eden read the story. There's lots of interesting things in it. There's lots of connections back to chapter 11. Let me just point out two of those things briefly for you. There's a lot more. First, in verse 3 of what Nathan says here, note the language where it says how the lamb used to eat, drink, and lie in the poor man's arms and That's the same language we saw last week in chapter 11, verse 11, when Uriah describes the home life that he was choosing not to enjoy with Bathsheba when he was in Jerusalem those few nights, remember? He wouldn't go eat and drink and lie. Secondly, just a second observation in verse 4 of what Nathan says, is no coincidence in verse 4 that the language there says, the rich man took the poor man's lamb and prepared it. We talked last week about how that verb was used in verse 4 of chapter 11 where it says, so David sent messages, messengers, and took her. He took Bathsheba. So the point, the point, of course, isn't that this is just a story of theft. This is a story of exploitation, of oppression, of selfishness, of greed. There's no moral ambiguity in the situation that Nathan presents. The only question is, what should be done, David? And then David explodes. <laughs> and I, we're, I'm, we're not really ready for that. I don't think. Makes me wonder what's going on internally in David. That his reaction to this would be that strong. David's angry, the text says. He becomes both seriously religious, as the Lord lives, he says, and gravely judicial. The man who's done this deserves to die pronounces. Except that the thing is, he didn't deserve to die. You see, this is David rendering a judgment based on the law. But technically, according to the law, what's required in this case is only what David then goes on to say. He shall restore the lamb fourfold. That's right. That's Exodus 22. David says that. But not until after... David, in his anger, had called the rich man a son of death, literally. What's the point? Well, the point is that David's anger is just a display of dazzling hypocrisy, right? Because the judge is himself a criminal whose deeds, in fact, did deserve death, according to the law. And so then comes what has to be one of the most dramatic moments in the Old Testament, the whole Bible, as Nathan faces the king who's just angrily declared this, this king whom the Lord had chosen, and Nathan pronounces these devastating words, You are the man, David. The story wasn't a report about someone else's crime. It was a mirror for David's own wickedness. 
The rich man was David. The poor man was Uriah. The lamb was Bathsheba. You are the man. And then... And then one commentator says, begins the hardest hour of David's life. That may be true. Then comes the indictment spoken by the Lord through Nathan now in verses 7 to 12. Look look at it, verse 7. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. All that David had, all that David was, had been God's gift. That's the point here. And if this were too little, verse 8 ends, I would add to you as much more. The point is, David lacked nothing. And I can't help but think again, as we did a bit last week, about Adam and Eve in the garden. Right? The Lord God had formed everything for them. They could eat of every tree save one. They didn't need to take the fruit of the one tree from which they were forbidden to eat. David didn't need to take the wife of Uriah either. And you know what the issue was in both cases? Both for Adam and Eve in the garden, and now David at the height of his kingdom... Why do they fall? Because they despise the word of the Lord. That's what verse 9 says. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? The serpent in the garden went right for it. Remember? Did God actually say? the origin point of sin. The failure to trust what God says, to trust that what the Lord has provided, what the Lord has promised, is enough and is good. To decide that something else is more desirable than that. And you know what that means when you decide that something else is more desirable? What it means when you despise the word of the Lord, it means that we've come in that moment to despise the Lord himself. You see that if you look down at verse 10. Verse 10 says, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me. Taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. You have despised me. Could you reflect on that this week in terms of thinking about sin? Because ultimately, essentially, that's better, because essentially all sin is a form of idolatry, right? It's the breaking of the first commandment. You shall have no other gods besides me. It's looking for our satisfaction in something other than the Lord and what he's promised and provided. It's a caving in around oneself, as Augustine famously puts it. And as that happens, you become indifferent to the word of God because your heart isn't pursuing God. 
Now, I think it's insightful in this instance to ask exactly what word of the Lord Nathan's referring to here that David was despising. It well might be the word of the commandments that, of course, include the commandment, you shall not commit adultery. I mean, David's the king, after all, who, according to Deuteronomy 17... Deuteronomy 17, the law of kings, Deuteronomy 17, 18, the king was to write for himself a copy of the law and read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes. That's Deuteronomy 17. Sure, that's part of it. But then I also think in this context, it has to also be the very promises that Nathan had delivered to David in 2 Samuel 7 that are in view here, those overwhelming promises of the Lord for David's house. David acts as if that wasn't enough. And so what you get is a twofold indictment then, as I read it, that are connected, two parts to this, connected to the two grave sins of murder and adultery that David committed. So if you go to the middle of verse 9, here we're focusing on the murder part. Middle of verse 9, you have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. So what will be the punishment? Verse 10a, now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house. From your house, you see the correspondence, the sword and the sword. But note how the sword will be in David's house. Which I think is a reference to the word of the Lord spoken by Nathan in chapter 7 about the, the promise for the house of David. This is at the heart of what David had despised in his sin. And then I think actually in, the, in where I left off in verse 10 there, there should be a period. If I were translating it, I'd put a period there. I'm not persuaded the ESV punctuates it the way I... Anyway, I think... Then the second indictment starts, and it's connected to the sin of adultery. So I'll pick it up in the middle of verse 10 as if it's a new sentence. Because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife, and then I just keep going into verse 11, thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the son, for you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. And there again you see a kind of correspondence, right? As the Lord will now take David's wives, just as David had taken Bathsheba. Only now it will be all in the open. And There again is this deeper connection to the promises of chapter 7, I think, because again, it's David's house that's in view here. The Lord had promised in chapter 7 to raise up David's offspring to become that house. Now the Lord's going to raise up evil out of that house. And at this point, all I'll say about that about what's there in these indictments in verses 9 to 12 is that this is what we're going to see in the rest of 2 Samuel. You see. This is the future that confronted David in the word of the Lord. It is not 
pleasant. But I still submit to you that all of that in verses 1 to 12 is the Lord pursuing David. And I think the Lord does that in order to bring about what we read in verse 13, which is the next section, actually, in which the Lord pardons David. There's only one verse in this section. Look at verse 13. David finally breaks. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. Where where do you even start on that? This is the central dynamic of the entire sequence of events in chapters 11 and 12. And I guess where I want to start is by saying that what I'm trying to show you is that the word of the Lord in verses 1 to 12 has done its work on David. The Lord had pursued David. It had brought about the intended result. David repented. Everything we just read is going to happen. David repented. And I do mean that David repented. This was a genuine confession. I know that because of Nathan's response. The Lord has put away your sin, Nathan says. The fact that the Lord forgives David means David's confession was genuine, but at this point, you might be thinking to yourself, that's it. (laughs) Just, I have sinned before the Lord. I mean, It seems so unimpressive. All the damage David had done. Showing no remorse at all. That's it. Let me make two comments here. This is really important. First comment, I'm not suggesting it was just a matter of David saying the right words. You can't tell anything just by words. Saul said the words, I have sinned. Remember that in 1 Samuel 15? And he didn't receive the same grace. I mean, we have to be really careful here, don't we? We just look at that brief statement, I have sinned against the Lord, and we're somehow disappointed because what we want is some intensity, right? I mean, we want tears. We want to see David pleading, begging, agonizing. We want, listen to me, we want David to convince us that he means it. Right? Maybe we even feel like that's what the Lord wants. Come on, David. Show the Lord you mean it. Because maybe deep down, what we actually think is that somehow the intensity of our repentance contributes to our atonement. 
do we do we think that somehow we impress God with the form of our repentance? Dear friends, it doesn't matter the outward form of our repentance. It matters what's in the heart. Circumstance and personality and who knows what else will shape what our repentance looks like at any given moment. But do you remember the tax collector that Jesus talks about in Luke chapter 18? All the tax collector has to say is, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Why? Because it's the state of one's heart that matters. And we can be more specific than that. It's the state of one's heart in response to the criticism of the word of God that matters. Oh, it matters. I suggest to you that the difference is that David is submissive here to the accusing word of God in a way Saul never was. And in this case, there's a lot to back me up because we read Psalm 51 earlier in this service. Do you know what Psalm 51 is? I mean, many of you do. By your reaction, you can tell me you know that. The title wasn't part of the reading that Marion led us through, but if you were to turn in your Bible, you don't have to, but if you were to turn in your Bible to Psalm 51, you'd see it. The heading of Psalm 51 is Psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. And so there it is. You want to know what's going on inside David? What was underneath, what was behind those simple words? Simple words. I have sinned against the Lord. Then read Psalm 51. It's incredible. And it's all there. Verse 4, Psalm 51. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. I Probably I should have planned to take a whole week on Psalm 51. I didn't. Brothers and sisters, hear me say this. The clear sign that the Spirit of God is in your life is not that you're sinlessly perfect. It's that your heart submits to the Word of God when it exposes your sin. And in response, you repent. You confess your sins. And I don't care what that looks like. You don't have to be able to compose a beautiful psalm. Just read it. Or we confess our sins in this service every week. You can use those words. Just understand that there's nothing magical about saying the words. It's as the words reflect the heart. So that's my first big comment about verse 13. In case you get hung up on that question. But now secondly, maybe it's not the form of David's words that bother you. Maybe it's the Lord's response that bothers you. The Lord has put away your sin, Nathan tells him. You shall not die. Which, of course, he did deserve to die according to the law. But that statement, the Lord has put away your sin... That should astonish us. I mean, I don't even know. I don't even know how you hear it. I worry a bit that we don't really marvel at that anymore. That I mean, people died because of David. 
right? A young woman was taken advantage of sexually, to put it mildly, by a man twice her age who was in a position of complete authority and influence in her life. And what does God do? Well, of course, we've seen that God is going to do a number of things. But at this most central moment of the text, what does God do? He puts that sin away. David doesn't have to die. Now, is that how's that possible? How's that right? Is that right? That God would put away sin like that? I mean, do you, maybe you don't, I don't know, do you feel a little of the weight of that? For the Lord who'd seen it all, in whose eyes it had all been evil, who'd sent Nathan to tell David what the Lord of Israel says about what he did, you despised me. How does the Lord do this? And time is short and these are the big chapters of Second Samuel, so I'm taking a long time, but I want to address this because maybe we do feel something there. We feel that sense of outrage at what the Lord has done. But let me now take a turn on you because here's what often happens. If that's true, if you feel that sense of outrage that the Lord would just do away with the sin somehow, what often happens is that somehow we start to think about this as being something we struggle with for David. Right? It seems wrong somehow to forgive David. But then, of course, by comparison, we aren't so bad. And so we begin to think that it's really just about gradations of sinfulness. And our problem is, well, what David did was really, really, really bad. So I don't see how the Lord could do this. problem is the Bible doesn't talk like that. Not, not to recognize, I do recognize that there's different penalties of the law for different things that happen, but I'm talking on a larger scale here. This is partly why I started the sermon quoting Jesus in Matthew talking about adultery and murder. The Bible's main issue isn't with how God can forgive someone as bad as David, The Bible's issue is with how God can forgive anyone of any sin at all. I mean, that's certainly Paul's concern. Listen to Romans chapter 3, verse 9. Paul says, For we have already charged that all are under sin, he says. It is written, None is righteous. No, not one. No one does good, not even one. Then later in the same chapter, Paul says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You're no different than David. Not in that ultimate way. So you see, Paul's and the Bible's way beyond the I'm basically a good person game. Paul's got another problem. And the solution to it will answer our question as well. How can God be righteous and pass over sin at all? Here's the answer. Now, I'm telling you, Psalm 51 and 2 Samuel chapter 12, these do not work 
until you see this. This is the point. Paul says, Romans 3, verse 25. Boy, write this down. It's like the, one of the most important verses of the Bible to me. Romans 3, verse 25. Paul says, God put Christ Jesus forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in God's divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. You bet he did. Look at David. And it's outrageous that God does that. Unless this works, brothers and sisters. Unless, unless you come to verse 13 of 2 Samuel 12 and it's the death of Jesus. That's the answer. That's enough to vindicate God here as a just judge, even though he passes over adultery and murder in deceit and David will not die. I'm not telling you God ignored David's sin. There's consequences for what David did. David's forgiven. You okay with that? This is an astonishing claim to make. I'm convinced it's the biblical perspective. Let me try and put it this way. Nathan could say, the Lord has put away your sin, David. Because Jesus Christ died on the cross at one place in one point of time for the sake of all God's people in all times and all places. It's how David could be forgiven. It's how Adam and Eve could be forgiven. It's how Abraham and Sarah and Moses and Elijah and the faithful remnant and how they're all forgiven and how everyone who has faith through the Bible from beginning to end is forgiven. God didn't just say, I've put away your sin. When he looked at David's faith, God said, I'll put away your sin only because God already knew his son would die for what David had done. You see? Which is the only way it works for you and me to be forgiven too. According to Paul, God looks upon the faith of a David who trusted in what was to him the mysterious mercy of God, and God applies the cross of his son to David's sin. That's what I'm teaching you today. We know David could. We know that God could do this because of Christ. David didn't know what we know. Nathan didn't know what we know. What David knew was that somehow the Lord could be gracious. What does Hebrews say? The blood of bulls and goats never takes away sin. It never did. God looks upon David's faith and sees that this faith that David has, that the Lord has brought him to in bringing him to repentance, this faith that David has unites him with the Christ who would come, and so David's sin is covered by Jesus a thousand years before Jesus died for it. And I want you to understand that. It's the only way I make sense of the Bible, frankly. David's sin was costly. 
It was obviously costly to Bathsheba and to Uriah and to the men who died next to Uriah in battle. But can you see that it was also costly to God? His son would die for it. The Lord pardons David. Now, in some ways, you can also say that it's costly to David too, right? Because the last part of 2 Samuel 12 which we're not going to talk about now due to time, touches on how the Lord punishes David. But I don't mean punishes in the sense of making atonement for what David did. So this is the third section, but we're not going to talk much about it. I mean punishes in the sense of carries out divinely decreed consequences for sin. Those don't necessarily go away because of forgiveness. You might have to think about that one for a bit. Verse 14, after he pronounces that David's forgiven, Nathan says, Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord. And here, uh, I'd argue the best translation is actually something like, because by this deed you have caused the enemies of the Lord to utterly scorn him. And the ESV gives you a footnote that mentions the enemies of the Lord there but even then it's tricky to put together in the hebrew the idea is that god's chosen king has given the enemies of god grounds to mock him because of that there's a divinely appointed consequence the child who is born to you shall die which is what happens verse 15 and the lord afflicted the child that david's that Uriah's wife bore to David and he became sick. And I'm aware of how troubling that is. I, the text says it was God's doing. I don't, I don't have comfortable answers for you to all the questions that we want to raise at that point. That would be a whole, we'd have to spend another sermon on the rest of chapter 12 to talk about that. All I'm going to say here is that sin has consequences and we cannot always understand them. But I do think we need to be slow in passing judgment on God's ways. We don't necessarily understand what God does. But I want you to know I do feel the challenge of those verses in 16 moving on. But then when that terrible scene is concluded... We get a surprising note of grace in verses 24 and 25. And just look there as we end. The text says, Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, first time her name's mentioned since the start of 11, and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet so he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord and 
of all the surprises in this chapter, maybe this is one of the greatest in a way. David and Bathsheba's marriage, evidently now blessed by the Lord, after David's repentance and forgiveness, bears another son. And this son was beloved of the Lord. That's what Nathan came to say. That's what Jedediah means, beloved of the Lord. It would be Solomon. It would be Bathsheba's son, who would be David's successor who would be next in the line of descendants, ultimately leading to Jesus, who is what? The king who would die to save his people from their sins. Friends, we're on the edge of Holy Week. Perhaps that's what the Lord was up to all along. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.